Guys, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started. Yes. If that time of talking uh, felt awkward to you, that's okay. We're going to do it every week, so you, just, you can just get used to it. Uh, yes. And we do that, I'll just remind you every week, because uh, we believe in, in living out what we talked about up here that we need each other, that we're a part of this together. Uh, and even that little moment of taking time in our service to, to talk is a way that we honor that reality and begin to build on it, uh, build on it together. So you guys know, uh, this fall, we have been uh, in the book of Revelation and we're kind of nearing the end of that arc. Uh, if you're here for the first time and you're like, what did I get myself into? Brace yourselves, because this week's passage is crazy, okay? But uh, in some ways, and we've talked about this almost every week, that what we have in Revelation to us uh, seems kind of so fantastical and hard to unpack, and yet it's a genre or a way of, uh, of having truth revealed to us that in some way we're already familiar with. And I used this example last week of... Uh, of the VHS that I grew up watching of SeaWorld, hosted by Jack Hanna, right? The behind-the-scenes look at how SeaWorld operates. And watching that behind-the-scenes view of SeaWorld, it gave me this deep appreciation and love for what happened there. And then I grew up and I watched another behind-the-scenes take of SeaWorld, which was Blackfish. And it gave me a different picture of SeaWorld that changed uh, the, the visuals of it uh, they are still stuck in my mind, very specifically of the orca with the fin that's built, bent over. So sad, yes, so sad. And it was that picture contrasted with the orca like free in the wilderness. It was like, oh, this is changing the way that I think and feel about the world. Did anybody else watch Blackfish and have that experience a little bit? Yes, okay, enough that SeaWorld is really struggling. So uh, that's, that's what Revelation is doing for us. It's helping us see what's going on behind the scenes of our world. And in doing that, it's, it's waking us up to reality. That, that God's goal in giving John these pictures to give to us is to capture our imaginations and our hearts to change the way that we actually live our day-to-day -day lives in this world because of these images that he's showing us. So that's what we're doing this morning as we're diving in to one of those images. Uh, it's, a woman, it's an image of a, of a woman, of a great prostitute seated on a beast. And as we unpack that, we're going to really talk about uh, the beauty and the seduction of this woman, the beauty and the seduction of the world, and then the beauty that's offered to us in Jesus. So if you're a note-taking person, those are the two points. It's a compare and contrast. The beauty and the seduction of this woman, and then the beauty that's offered to us in Christ. So I'm going to invite Mary Bloom to come up. Mary is going to read our passage for us out of uh, Revelation 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. All the way, the very back of the Bible, last book, right before you get to all of the notes and the concordance and stuff, the maps. Uh, yeah, you can use mine. And then the, the mic is right there, Mary. And then uh, it will also be up on the screen behind you, so you can follow along back here as well. Okay. Buckle up. <laughs> then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of, earth, and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are, they, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Thanks, Mary. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, it uh, is so far out of our everyday experience that these are not the words that we are used to speaking Lord, not the words that we are used to hearing. Uh, and just confess, Jesus, even hearing them read, uh, this piece of me and I think this piece of us that wants to push away from them because they seem hard to understand. Uh, and Lord, pray that through your spirit you'd be drawing us closer, uh, closer to yourself, uh, to your gospel through these words, even this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. And so in, in this passage, uh, we see really specifically the image of this great prostitute, this woman seated on the dragon. And I kind of want to remind you where we are in the arc of Revelation, that we've been exploring different themes throughout this book. And most recently, we've been talking about the enemies of Jesus, right? That, that the picture of Revelation is this king who is coming finally to establish his kingdom in full on the earth. But we see and have seen that that kingdom is resisted in all kinds of ways. Last week we talked about how one of the ways that that kingdom is resisted is through uh, this great serpent, this great deceiver who, whose story goes over the course of the Bible. And that's Satan, this force of spiritual darkness out in the world. And what has happened in Revelation between that chapter that we read this week and the chapter that we're in, or chapter that we read last week and the chapter that we read this week is that uh, in the image, there have also been these two other enemies introduced, this beast from the land, this beast from the sea. And you see that kind of in opposition to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have this unholy Trinity of Satan and these two beasts. 
So there's this kind of duality, these conflicting images. And in the same way that we talked about the woman who is the church in the world, we see the woman who is this great prostitute seated on the beast. So again, this contrasting imagery, this conflict imagery. And the woman who we see pictured in this passage, she represents uh, the biblical category of the world. That all throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, the opposition or the resistance to God's kingdom is characterized in a few different ways, often in these categories of, uh, of world, flesh, and devil. So we talked about Satan last week, right? The flesh is the, is the part of ourselves that is drawn after things that aren't God, and the world represents the systems and the cultures, the pieces of this world that pull against us and want to pull us away from God. This woman is the, is the biblical category of the world personified, and she's given the name of Babylon. And Babylon has this long, again, long history of, over the course of the biblical narrative. So like you think all the way back to the Tower of Babel, which we talked about when we were preaching Genesis like last semester. The city that was built on, on its foundation, the idea of Babel was a city that was opposed to God, a city that did not have God at its foundation, but had human effort and human wisdom as its foundation. And that, that city, that Babel, is traced all throughout the, the narrative of Scripture. It becomes the actual city of Babylon, and it's pictured and symbolized in all of these different ways, but it's a city that is opposed to God. And here, that city is personified as this woman, as this great prostitute. And this woman, she exercises, this is, this is part of the, the, the visual image here, she exercises uh, what sociologists would call soft power. John Mark Comer, he wrote this book called Live No Lies, and he talks about the world, I think, in a way that's so helpful. And, and he describes the difference between uh, between hard power and soft power. And this is kind of how he sums it up. He says, the political scientist Joseph Nye of Harvard coined the language of hard power versus soft power to talk about tip typical ways of sociopolitical influence. Basically, hard power is coercion by brute force. For a government, this would mean military violence or economic sanctions. It's North Korea's police state and labor camps for for China, in, in tanks in Tiananmen Square, or the de-radicalization of Uyghurs via internment camps. That's hard power out in the world. He says, but soft power is a different beast. It's the ability to shape the preferences of others and the ability to attract. Hollywood, he says, is the epitome of soft power. He said, it's done more to change Western wars around sex, divorce, adultery, vulgar speech, and consumerism than almost anything, simply by making movies that are fun to watch. Another example is the advertising industry, which is an attempt to control our behavior, not through coercion, but consumerism, simply by appealing to our desires. And the woman that we see in this passage uh, is an embodiment of that kind of seductive, soft power. That's what it, that's what it means when, when she talks about her being clothed uh, in scarlet and purple, being, wearing all these jewels and, and beautiful garments, is that it, it's a way of, of drawing us uh, to her. The mechanism for her power and influence in the world is not hard power, but soft power, is her ability to, to persuade, to draw us in to create an alternative and competing vision of what is beautiful in the world. 
the mechanism is desire. So she creates this alternative vision of what is beautiful and draws us to it. And it's powerful, guys. The disciple, the apostle John himself is, is captured by it. It says in verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. That's what John says. So imagine, John, this guy who has seen all of these heavenly visions, who has seen God in his throne room, is like one of those uh, old kind of slightly misogynistic uh, Looney Tunes characters who's like stomping his foot and who eyes, whose eyes get really big when he sees this woman. He's marveling at her. And the angel next to him, it's like the angel ribs him and says, hey, why do you marvel? He's like, man, you're missing it. I'll tell you about the mystery of this woman, about the seven beasts and the ten horns that carry her. There's so much power in her ability to seduce in this, in this false picture of beauty that she's created and, and, and is holding up for the world. And we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking what that looks like because that false vision of beauty, it actually, it makes its way into the church all the time. It's easy to talk about the world as this thing that is like out there, but friends, it's in here, it's in us. And we know that even when we look at the beginning of the book of Revelation in the letters that we preached about these churches that were caught up in the world, where the world had infiltrated the church. It had co-opted them. John Mark Comer talks about them being colonized by the world. This woman represents lavish and luxurious living, wealth and status, sex and celebrity, power, prestige and privilege all kind of rolled into one. And it's important that we don't stereotype her because that's what we often do in the church. We talk about, uh, about this woman, about the world, as if it's people who uh, have too much sex, who drink too much, and have too much fun, right? Like the woman is like out on Broadway. That's, that's the world. Well, okay, yes. But that's not it. No, she's capable of wrapping herself in so many other types of clothes, She's capable of wrapping herself in kind of the austere garments of progressivism. She's capable of wrapping herself in an American flag bikini of, of traditional values. But it's not one specific worldview that represents the world. It's the way of the world that's woven into all of our alternative worldviews that have their foundation in anything that's not God. She's New York and L.A. and she's their little sister, Nashville. Right? The it city, it's the skyscrapers that are going up downtown. It's the new Titan Stadium. It is what happens on Broadway also, right? And in a city like Nashville, it's our commodified and commercialized Christianity. It's the brand of Christianity that Nashville is outselling to the world and making a lot of money on it. It's kind of the smorgasbord spirituality that we take, that kind of approach that we take here. Yeah, like I'll take the pieces of, of Jesus that make me feel good and the pieces of this that make me feel good because ultimately what this is about is me feeling good. And man, talk about Nashville as a place of influence that's taking that version of the world, that vision of beauty and what it means to follow Jesus and then pumping it out to the world. Ultimately, this woman is anything that we think is going to give us life apart from Jesus. Oh, and it's so seductive. 
like think about just for a moment your desire uh, to be near power, right? To be like close to people who have influence. Like when you're at work, you don't want to be the person who uh, learns the news from someone else, right? Like you want to be the person who knows. Like you, wanna, you and I want to be the people who are able to say to someone else, hey, did you hear about? And they're like, no. You're like, well, let me tell you, right? Don't you want to be that person? You don't want to be the other person, certainly. Right, that, that's that idea of I just want to get close to power. I'll do whatever it takes to get one, one kind of further ring in. Oh, our desire to, to be uh, acceptable in the world, to, like have, to have friends and a sense of belonging, that people would look at us and say that we're wise, that we know what we're talking about. Oh, and what won't we give up to have people say that about us? What, what parts of our worldview or our convictions will we not hide and bury to be able to be found acceptable by the people around us? And those compromises, they can feel so small, like, like oh, well, I'm, I'm obviously very committed to my marriage vows. But like, what's one peak every now and again kind of outside of that? It, like, it stops me from doing anything worse. Which is a little compromise. That, that seduction that would pull us toward a different idea of what's good and true and beautiful, that over time, even if the formality of those vows has never been broken, can totally hollow out a relationship and a marriage? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Do you feel it? That pull toward the world and its values? Let me ask you this. Who do you envy? Like, who is it in your life that you say, if I could be like that person, uh, I, I would finally be happy? Maybe who is that person in this room? And that's going to tell you everything you need to know about where you're going to find life outside of Jesus. It's going to tell you everything what, that you need to know about where uh, you've been seduced. And, and what John is taking pains to show us is that this beauty is deceptive. It's hollow, it's empty. And he takes us uh, to the moment that she's judged. And her judgment is unlike the judgment that happens in the rest of the book because the judgment comes upon her from, from the beast. Right? And what that reminds us is that evil is not this cohesive, uh, is not this cohesive system that somehow is bent on uh, providing an alternative way of life to God, that evil is chaos and destruction and devastation. And evil is always going to turn in on itself. That's what happens in this passage. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, these kingdoms of the world, the people with power and authority, they will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. It's a terrifying picture. But it's what we expect when our idols disappoint us because when our idols, when the things that we go to to find life outside of Jesus disappoint us, we're furious about it, aren't we? And they always disappoint us. So Proverbs tells us that that's the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain as it takes away the lives of those who get it. 
that when we go to find life in places that aren't God, we're always going to be disappointed. Always. It may take a long time. God willing, he's going to shorten that for us and make it fast. But those idols are always going to come up empty. And you guys have heard me use this, this quote before. It's from David Foster Wallace from a, a, a commencement address he gave at Kenyon University. And this guy is not, he's not a Christian, right? But he sums up so well uh, the way that I, our idols end up being empty. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual lure, and you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. That our idols always disappoint us. And the picture that we have here in Revelation in this passage is when those idols start to disappoint, that we turn our anger and our vengeance on those idols. We consume them as we are consumed by them. That John is showing us, this picture is showing us the emptiness of all of these other places that we go to find life. David Foster Wallace goes on to say, the insidious things about these form of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious, they're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure, how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Our present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of creation. That he, he, right, he's so close. He's acknowledging all the ways that all of our false worship comes to disappoint us, the way it falls back on us and collapses in on itself, and yet he wants to make it simply a matter of unconscious desire. And what Revelation says is that's not true. There's actually a resistance out in the world that is actively pulling you away from God into these other ways of living, these other places to find life. So what do we do? How do we escape? Do you guys want to escape that? I don't know, is it like a little bit warm in here this morning? Did everyone, maybe we didn't get enough sleep last night. I feel like it's like a little, yeah, like that's, that's us, isn't it? And you don't have to be a Christian to say, I don't want that for my life. You don't have to know Jesus to say, that's dehumanizing. You don't have to know Jesus to say, that kind of living is destroying our world. And to say, there's got to be something better than this. There is. That's what John is, that's what Revelation is all about is laying that out and the call is to, to leave Babylon, come out of it, resist that woman and her seduction, live in a different way. But the only way that we can do that, guys, is by, by finding something that is more beautiful than the woman. The only way we can do that is by finding something to marvel at that is more marvelous than the woman. to find a vision of life more compelling, more beautiful than what we see offered in the world. We need a change that works on the level of our desire. Like it makes me think of when I was first married. 
because this is the only kind of thing I would do when I was first married. We went to a raw vegan restaurant, okay, here in Nashville. How interesting and exciting. Very different than what I normally eat, okay? And we had heard at this restaurant, guys, I, this is funny to me, the, place, the idea that I would go to a place like that. Are you with me this morning? Okay. Uh, we were told, you have to try the lasagna. The raw vegan lasagna, the uncooked vegetable lasagna is so good, it's to die for. So we ordered the vegan lasagna, the vegan raw lasagna, and it was fine. Like, would I rather eat that than carrots by themselves? Yes! In that sense, it was good, okay? But I left and I was, I was deeply offended at the vegan lasagna because it was not lasagna. Just call it something different. Call it layered vegetables, right? But it's not the real thing. And no one who has had the real thing, actual lasagna, is going to think that the vegan lasagna is better than it because it's not. Like, imagine if your whole life you had only ever eaten raw vegan lasagna and had been told, that's lasagna. And then you have the real thing, right? You're like, well, I'm never going to eat that again. I want the real thing. Are you with me a little bit? Okay. There's this Scottish preacher, theologian, academic, who called that the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. That what we need is not rules for better living, is not more discipline in our lives that's finally going to change us. What we need is for our heart to be captured by a beauty that is so much greater than the beauty that this world has to offer. Chalmers says there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. Two ways we can get the love of the world out of us. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart shall be prevailed upon to reject and with, withdraw its regards from an object that's not worthy of it. Or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which will have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. Yes, in this passage, John does show us the vanity and the emptiness of our idols, but in the context of the entire book of Revelation, he's showing us the beauty of our Jesus over and over and over and over again. That's why we spent so much time talking about the worship of God in his throne room, because when we see that vision of who God is, we're moved by the beauty of it. When we hear about the Lion of Judah, and then we look and we see the Lamb, the little Lamb who was slain on our behalf, we say, that is good and beautiful and true. And it's so much better, and it's so much more beautiful than all the stuff the world has to offer. Uh, and we see that so powerfully, that beauty in the person of Jesus. We see it all throughout the Gospels. We see it in this story. A story in Luke where, where a woman who is characterized as a sinner. Well, let me tell you this. So, so let me set up the scene. So Jesus is at a dinner. And he's at a dinner with a well-respected religious leader. And this guy, in a sense, has invited Jesus to his house in the way of the world to be like, hey, I'm going to get close to this guy who has a lot of influence. Like, look how important I am. He came to my house for dinner. So that's what's happening there. And into the middle of this dinner party comes a woman who is called a sinner and who this religious leader calls a sinner. She is possibly, probably a prostitute. And when she comes into this room uh, in the middle of a dinner, she takes this jar of very expensive ointment 
of perfume and she breaks it and she pours it over Jesus' feet. And she stands behind him and she weeps and she wipes his feet with her hair and with her tears. It is one of the, the most beautiful and the most awkward pictures that I have seen in all of scripture. It makes me so uncomfortable to read. What is this woman doing? And that's what the religious teacher asks. That's what he thinks in his heart, actually, the text says. If Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus looks at him and he rebukes that man and he protects and defends this woman. He says, what she has done is so beautiful, it will be told across the world for the rest of time. And what was it that this woman understood about Jesus that that religious teacher did not understand at all? Oh, this woman had encountered, she knew and trusted the character of Jesus. She knew him to be an authoritative moral teacher who came and spoke words from God, of God. She knew that that was true about him. And yet she also knew and saw that he was marked by a kind of mercy and grace that she had seen and experienced nowhere else in the world. And because of that beauty, she was drawn to him over every kind of social expectation, over every kind of barrier, over ever since, ever, any kind of sense of embarrassment that would have kept her from Jesus, she came and she gave all of who she was to Jesus because of how beautiful she knew him to be. And Jesus responded to her with such kindness, such gentleness and such grace that he defended her in the sight of all of these more powerful people is amazing to me. It makes me love Jesus. To say that is so beautiful. And to recognize that in that woman, in that potential prostitute, we see ourselves. That we have gone after so many other gods, we've looked for life in so many other places. That it's stuff that we have, it's a way of living that has in some ways been done to us and is in some ways something that we choose. That both are true. And yet Jesus, in his holiness, with all of his authority and power, chooses to give himself for us and, and shower grace and mercy on our lives. That's the beauty of the gospel. The kind of beauty that drives out everything else that would claim to be beautiful. That's not power or privilege. That's not lust or luxury. That's a Jesus who is gentle and lonely, gentle and lowly, a Jesus who is a friend of sinners. Who with his great authority chooses self-sacrifice in the way of love. That's a Jesus who captures our hearts and our minds, right? Our desires. Josh Garrels has this song called Zion and Babylon. At the end of it, uh, there's this call from God to his children. And I, want you, and I want you to hear it as what God is saying to you. Oh, my child, daughters and sons, I have made you in love to overcome. Free as a bird, my flowers in the sun, on your way to Mount Zion, all you slaves be set free. Come on out, child, come on home to me. We will dance, we will rejoice. If you can hear me, then follow my voice. But that's the call of Jesus all throughout the book of Revelation. Come out of Babylon and come home. 
Come into the freedom and joy of being found. Because in one of the ways that we do that is here on Sunday morning. This may be the most countercultural thing, the most, uh, this may be the way that you undermine the world most in your life is by being here on a Sunday morning because this is the place uh, that we come to be reminded of what's good and true and beautiful about the gospel. This is the place that we have other people sing it over it. This is the place that we hear other people make promises that remind us about the promises that we have made and what's true about us, that we are people who are desperately in need of Jesus. That that's not something to hide, but that's a place that, that our God has come and met us and loves us. It's ground zero for us experiencing his love for us. It's not just Sunday mornings. It's, it's our life as a body together, as the bride of Christ. Because in contrast to this woman, the woman that we see in the, in the final chapters of Revelation that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks after this is the woman who is the bride, the woman who is the church, the woman who is us, who God has prepared for himself to come and to be with forever. And that's true about you in the same way that these people made vows here saying, we know that we are a part of this community. That's it, true about all of us. That God has created us for community to be on this walk, this journey toward beauty with other people. Forging relationships with other people that train us toward and teach us to walk into beauty. That in our time together, oh, imagine what it would be like if we did not only complain to each other about all the things that were wrong in the world, but we actually celebrated together the beautiful things that we saw God doing in us and in each other. Oh, that's what it means to be part of this community together. Yes, that we would call each other not to be seduced by the woman, but that we would also call each other toward what is beautiful. That us together, that we would put ourselves in, in the way of oncoming beauty, is how one author talks about it. That's, our, that's, that's who we are to each other. And as we have our minds and our imaginations disciplined by the beauty of the gospel, what it does is it teaches us to discern that beauty out in the world. Because this woman, she can't create anything new. All she can do is take what God has already said is beautiful and twist it. And so what that means is that we get to become people who look out into our world and can see the ways that she has twisted beauty. We can see through those things and we can see through those things to actually see to the people who Jesus loves that we can be together a community of people who see the beauty of what God is doing out in the world and who move out there to be part of it. To separate the Babylon from the beauty. And we get to go out there together as people who are cultivating beauty. And that's why so many of you are artistic or are involved in art as like your job. It's so important. It's so important that whether it's explicit or implicit that this picture that the gospel gives us of what beauty looks like is put out into the world because it's that beauty that draws people to Jesus. And if that's not you, I'm not an artist at all, it's still you because you are. Even if you're not writing songs or painting pictures, right? That the, the call to follow Jesus is to be, a, to be a person, to be part of a people who carry beauty out with us wherever we go, who find it and create it, who steward it wherever we go in our relationships, in our homes, in our neighboring, in our working. 
that we would be a people who carry that beauty of the gospel out into the world wherever we go. Will you guys let me, I'm gonna end with this quote from a Switchfoot song. Okay, you know how much I love contemporary Christian music from the early 2000s, okay? From the song, The Beautiful Letdown. We're a beautiful letdown, painfully uncool. The church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, the fools. That's us. And part of coming to peace with this reality is realizing we're never gonna be sitting at the cool kids' table. That's okay. Right, it's us making peace with that reality. We're a beautiful letdown, painfully uncool. The church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, the fools, that what we're celebrating is not our own beauty, but the beauty of the God who has come and who has loved us anyway, and the fact that he has made us beautiful. That that's the beauty we get to see and call out in each other and call out, draw out in the world. So I'm gonna invite the band to come up. They're gonna sing some songs, and we're gonna get to live into this reality together as we worship and close with worship this morning. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, uh, Lord, I confess, we confess that we are a people who are so easily captured by so many other loves. Oh, Lord, and rather than being ashamed of that this morning, rather than trying to hide it from you or from ourselves, would you bring those things to the surface, Jesus, so we can leave them at your feet and see how much more beautiful you are. We pray, God, that as we worship, you would be capturing us with the beauty of your gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.